This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for joining us on yet another week of this exciting podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Laura Walker, a familiar face and voice for most of you, I hope. And she joins us today with, I think, what will be a very interesting article to a broad range of physicians and healthcare providers. Laura, welcome back to the show. And why don't you jump in and introduce the article for this week? Great. Okay. Thanks for having me again, Kieran. So the article that I chose for this week is entitled Association Between Wait Time and 30-Day Mortality in Adults Undergoing Hip Fracture Surgery. And this article was published in JAMA in November 2017. Okay, and I gotta say hip fracture times in surgery is not a new concept. It's been looked at before. Tell us, Laura, what's the bottom line for this article that's of interest to our listenership? The bottom line for this article is that among adults who underwent hip fracture surgical repair, increased wait time beyond 24 hours was associated with an increased risk of 30-day mortality in addition to other complications. Aha! So it seems like we've identified a critical inflection point as far as how long is too long. Tell me, Laura, why did you choose this article? So I chose this article because hip fractures are a relatively common injury among our aging population. As our elderly population increases, hip fractures are going to become more prevalent in our society. Approximately 310,000 individuals were hospitalized with a hip fracture in the U.S. in 2003, and this number actually continues to grow. The reason why this is so significant is because hip fractures themselves carry a significant risk of morbidity and mortality in the elderly. In-hospital mortality rates range between 1 and 10%, depending on the location of the hospital and patient characteristics, and one-year mortality following a hip fracture ranges between 12 and 37%, again, depending on patient characteristics. And so what is this study trying to add to our overall understanding of hip fractures and wait times? So wait times for hip fracture surgery have been linked to mortality, but there's actually controversy about the duration of wait time that leads to increased mortality and other complications. And this is actually what the study is setting out to do. They wanted to determine the optimal time window in which to perform hip fracture surgery before the risk of complications and mortality increase. Okay, well, that sets the stage nicely. What was the design of this study and where did it take place, Laura? So this was a retrospective cohort study that was conducted using administrative data from 72 hospitals in Ontario for a five-year period, ranging from 2009 until 2014. And who were the patients they included in this study? So patients were included in the study if they were adults undergoing hip fracture surgery in Ontario during the study time frame. Patients were excluded if they were non-Ontario residents, if they had died on or before their index date, if they had an elective hospital admission, if their hospital arrival time wasn't documented, or if they had a prior hip fracture dating back to 2002. Seems fair. And what was the exposure that they were looking at? So the exposure was the wait time for hip fracture surgery, which the investigators defined as the total time that elapsed between the patient's arrival in the emergency department and their surgery. And what was the primary outcome as far as examining wait times for hip fracture surgery? So the primary outcome that they measured was 30-day mortality. Secondary outcomes included medical complications, specifically myocardial infarct, DVT, PE, and pneumonia, and they measured these at 30 days, 90 days, and 365 days. 
to determine when the risk of these outcomes increased rather than arbitrarily dividing patients into early and delayed surgery using a randomly chosen cutoff time, the researchers actually used risk-adjusted restricted cubic splines modeling to determine the probability of complications according to the time elapsed from the emergency department arrival to surgery in hours. They graphically displayed the relationship between surgical wait time and hours and mortality to determine an inflection point or cutoff point when mortality and complications began to arise. So we're taking pretty much all comers who have an emergency hip fracture in Ontario. And so long as we're able to document when they arrived in the emergency department, we're measuring the time from the arrival to the time that they get their hip fracture fixed. And then we're following them to look at their 30-day mortality. And it's sort of different because you're now looking at every time interval from the beginning to the end, as opposed to arbitrarily defining a random time that you might call early versus late. Does that have it uh, right, Laura? Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. So what did they find? So there were over 42,000 patients who were included in the study. Their mean age was approximately 80 years and over 70% of them were women. And the mean time to surgery was 38.8 hours. When did complications begin to increase as far as wait times? So the researchers found that with respect to wait times, the 24-hour mark was when the complications began to increase. They therefore used this 24-hour mark as the inflection point and then divided patients into early and delayed surgery groups based on this cutoff time. Using this new definition, approximately 33% of patients received early surgery and 66% received delayed surgery. Those who received delayed surgery had a 30-day mortality rate of 6.5% compared to those who received early surgery who had a 30-day mortality rate of 5.8%, resulting in an absolute risk difference of 0.8%, which was statistically significant. In addition, those in the early surgery group had significantly less rates of complications, including PE, MI, and pneumonia at 30, 90, and 365 days. Rates for DVT were not significantly different between the two groups, and the rates of surgical complications, such as dislocation and hardware removal, were not found to be affected by wait time. Sounds like they nailed it on this study. But I got to ask the obvious question, Laura. We're talking about a retrospective administrative data study where obviously these types of patients who have early less than 24 hours or late greater than 24 hour hip surgery wait times might be very different. So were they the same or were they very different at the baseline? So the patients were found to be different uh, at baseline. Um, Those in the delayed surgery group were actually found to be more medically complex than those in the early group. However, they did use propensity score models to adjust for potential confounding factors. And these factors included age, gender, medical comorbidities, type of fracture and surgery, severity of the injury, the surgeon volume and experience, hospital volume and type, and length of surgery. And these findings held true after they had adjusted for these confounding factors. Okay, so pause for concern, but they've done some fancy statistical modeling to help adjust for it. What do you think overall on the balance of strengths and limitations in this particular study? So the main strength of the study was that it used a novel approach by analyzing time as a continuous variable to determine a wait time threshold where complications began to arise rather than arbitrarily choosing a wait time cutoff. 
Another strength was their large sample size. And in addition, the authors note that their findings can be generalized to other healthcare systems that also experience wait times for hip fracture surgery, such as the United States and Europe. One weakness is that it was a retrospective cohort study, so every single confounding factor may not have been able to been a to be adjusted for. And another weakness to note is that certain things could not be completely adjusted for, such as medications, including blood thinners, because this data is only available in Ontario for patients who are age 65 and older. Although this is true, they were able to do a sensitivity analysis restricted to patients age 65 and older, and they adjusted for antiplatelet and anticoagulant medications in this group, and they found equivalent results. And I think sort of by extension on the limitation of the information that's available in, in administrative data. You know, you pointed out that these patients who waited longer were more medically complex. And so there's definitely a component of decision making and discussion with family members and caregivers probably that's occurring that may also delay surgery beyond a 24 hour mark. And I don't think that's necessarily inappropriate per se, because sometimes these are difficult decisions to make and goals of care needed to be sorted out. And that takes time. And so, you know, I think that uh, while it's an important finding, the, the caveat about not necessarily rushing to surgery just based on the fact that time is life, so to speak, from this finding in the setting of hip fracture, it's still important to have that, those conversations. Laura, who does this study apply to then? So this study is rather broad and it applies to adult patients who have sustained a hip fracture and are going to undergo a hip fracture surgery who have not had a prior hip fracture in the recent past. And what do you think about the takeaway messages here for our listenership? What would you say the interpretation of this study should be? So the main learning point from this article is that in patients who are undergoing hip fracture surgery, there is an increased risk of 30-day mortality and other complications such as MI, PE, and pneumonia with increased surgical wait times. The inflection or cutoff point from this trial where complications start to increase appears to be the 24-hour mark. And this is interesting because the current Canadian guidelines mandate that hip fracture surgery be completed within 48 hours of hospital arrival. So further studies will need to be conducted to determine if this benchmark needs to be shortened in order to decrease patient complications and mortality. Interesting. It, it could have some potential for important policy uh, implications, but I think I would just re-highlight the importance of the difficult decision-making sometimes that can be in putting complex patients through surgery when the overall outcome, you know, can be limited as far as quality of life following hip fracture. How do you think this is going to apply to clinician practice? Is it going to change your practice? Is it going to change other clinicians' practices? Well, this doesn't change my practice uh, because I am in internal medicine, but I do think that this may pave the way for future randomized trials to see if these findings hold true. So there actually is a current Canadian study underway called the HIP ATTACK study that is randomizing patients between early hip fracture surgery and standard of care, although their definition of early surgery is actually six hours, which is a different time cutoff than this current study. So we'll see if this study produces similar results. Ultimately, if there are multiple studies that eventually show a mortality benefit for earlier surgery, the Canadian guidelines may have to be adjusted accordingly. And this will require a change in practice, as the authors of the study suggest, because this study showed that 66% of patients did not receive surgery within this 24-hour time frame. So if a new time frame were to ultimately be put in place, performance improvement measures will need to be undertaken in order for hospitals to meet this new target. 
a door to nail time, so to speak, in the world of door to needle for stroke and MI. Thank you, Laura. Fantastic study. Really interesting. Very relevant. Let's move on now to the study that I chose for this week, which is examining the association between clinicians who deny specific patient requests for a variety of things and the patient's rating of satisfaction with their physician. This was published in JAMA Internal Medicine in November of 2017, and the first author was Anthony Durant. Sounds very interesting. So what's the bottom line for this article? Well, Laura, in this cross-sectional study of over 1,000 adult visits to over 50 family physicians, denials of requests for referral, for pain medication, for other new medications, and for laboratory tests were associated with worse patient satisfaction with the clinician when compared to fulfillment of the respective request type. Very interesting. So why did you choose this article, Kieran? Well, of course, clinical outcomes such as survival and improvement of quality of life are very important and generally the mainstay of clinical research. But patient satisfaction, regardless of the outcome, is also in paramount importance. So much so that some healthcare systems around the world actually link patient satisfaction scores to financial incentives for their physicians or their healthcare system. In the age of choosing wisely and the reduction of low value or inappropriate testing and treatment, many of us wonder, is patient satisfaction with the clinician associated with clinician denial of distinct type of patient requests? In other words, if I'm trying to practice clinical restraint and reduction in ordering of low-value tests, are my patients going to be more dissatisfied with me as a consequence? Hmm. So what was the design of the study and where did it take place? So this was a cross-sectional study. It just took an instant in time at the University of California Davis Family Medicine Clinic waiting room between the year of 2015 and 2016. And who were the patients in this study? So these were all adults that were seen in the academic clinic at the California Davis Family Medicine Clinic, and they conduct just over 35,000 annual visits to this center. So what was the exposure for this study? So they compared patient satisfaction in those whose specific health care requests were denied to those who had their specific health care requests fulfilled. And they did this in a kind of interesting way. So they used immediate post-visit questionnaires using the healthcare providers and systems clinician and group adult visit survey, which this survey asks six simple questions regarding the physician. Question number one, easy to understand information. In other words, was it presented easily by the physician? Number two, did the physician have a good knowledge of your health and your health conditions? Number three, did the clinician demonstrate an adequate level of respect to you as a patient? Number four, did they spend adequate time with you? Number five, what is the patient's overall rating of their clinician and their experience with them in that visit? And number six is, would they as a patient recommend their clinician to a family member or friend? So what other variables did they measure? Well, they set out to measure a variety of critical factors that may affect someone's rating of a physician overall. And these are things like, had they had prior requests denied? what were some of the demographic factors, and their own personal perception of their personal health. Finally, they also did something neat by measuring an individual's skepticism for medical care and personality traits. And without getting into the details of how they did this, they're using validated instruments to do so. 
So in other words, what they were trying to do was account for as many things that may influence someone's rating of their physician that is not the actual physician's visit themselves. So we're just trying to get at the true reflection of what that physician visit entailed and how it left the patient feeling whether their requests were denied or fulfilled. So what was the primary outcome? Simple primary outcome, Laura. The primary outcome was patient satisfaction with a physician visit. Seems simple enough. So what were the main findings of the study? So in this study, they had just over 1,300 visits to 56 different physicians by a little over 1,100 patients. Uh, Patients on average were 45 years old, generally Caucasian, and 70% were female. Most had received at least a high school education and many had gone on to college, so a fairly well-educated cohort of individuals. The requests that they made were generally for referrals to see specialists. They had requests for specific lab and radiological tests, and they also had requests specifically for pain medications and other types of medications. Overall, 85% of the requests given to their physicians were fulfilled. So on the most part, physicians are doing what patients ask of them. But the following denials were associated with significantly lower patient satisfaction. And the way they sort of report these numbers are complicated just due to the statistics of it all. But generally speaking, you can think of it as patients are 10 to 20% less satisfied compared to those who had a fulfilled request. So those denials were a request for a referral, for a pain medication, for some other medication, but specifically not including antibiotics, and for specific lab tests. If patients requested radiological procedures or tests and other types of tests, they did not seem to affect their overall rating of satisfaction with their clinician. So did you find that there were any interesting points or observations you wanted to point out about this study? For one, this confirms my own concerns that when I tell patients that I don't think that the tests they're asking for uh, should be done for a variety of reasons, that they may leave my office more dissatisfied with me. But just as I don't often understand when that happens with my patients, this study doesn't allow us to understand as to why these results occur. So certainly patients who present with pain are known in the literature from research to come with high expectations for treatment. And so therefore, you know, denial of opioid medications may lead to dissatisfaction. But we don't actually truly know for all of the different things that are associated with uh, patient dissatisfaction, why they occur and why patients find that to be dissatisfying. The other thing to point out is, as I mentioned, this is a fairly well-educated group of individuals. And so whether this applies to lower socioeconomic or lower education populations and cultures, uh, we don't really know. So what do you think are the main takeaway points from this article? I really think that we should interpret this study carefully. It could easily be said that I should simply fulfill all patient requests of me, else I risk dissatisfaction with my care, and that may have substantial career or financial penalties if I work within a system that incentivizes that. But... As the authors point out, and I think I completely agree, it also poses an opportunity to train physicians in how to handle requests such that the end result is a satisfied patient no matter whether you fulfill or deny the request. And that, I think, is the the most interesting interpretation of this study. Laura, another great week on the show. Thank you for joining me. 
Well, thanks as always, Kieran. This week, it is my favorite part of the show, but we're going to do it a little bit differently. That's right, it's the good stuff segment. But our very own Anthony Maher, who is our communications and social media director, has prepared a fascinating discussion on the carbon footprint of medicine. And so, Anthony, I'm going to leave it to you to take us home. The reality of climate change in the 21st century is familiar to many of us and presents a range of social, political and economic challenges. But the carbon footprint of healthcare services, it's not something we always think about when planning or evaluating models of care. Today, I'm delighted to share a Good Stuff recommendation that engages with this important question. I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Moen, a consultant psychiatrist with the Oxford Health Trust and Associate Registrar for Sustainability at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He has written extensively on sustainability in mental health care, and I'm thrilled to get the chance to introduce his paper entitled Evaluating Sustainability, a Retrospective Cohort Analysis of the Oxfordshire Therapeutic Community. This paper offers an analysis of the financial costs and greenhouse gas emissions associated with a therapeutic community service for those with personality disorder. It is the first of its kind to measure the carbon footprint of a mental health service. Dr. Bowen, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you could share with our listeners the rationale and inspiration behind the paper. Well, the mental health and the health impacts of climate change uh, are going to be very significant. And we as um, doctors need to be aware of the very large contribution we are giving to climate change through our healthcare services. The US healthcare system, if it was a country, would be the 13th largest emitter of greenhouse gases as a country in the whole world. Now that is very, very significant. Bigger than the UK itself, we have a duty to reduce the, the carbon footprint associated with healthcare. And most of that is related to clinical factors such as medication and equipment. And um, building on those ideas, I wonder if you have any insights on how we might achieve sustainability in healthcare more generally. Um, so thinking about the takeaway points from this paper that all clinicians should know about. This paper says that there are things that we can do which um, and intervene with early to um, prevent illness, to empower patients to manage their own illness, which can reduce the carbon footprint of the wider healthcare system in the community. But also, most importantly, actually, we need to look at waste in services. We need to reduce waste. Over-medication, over-investigation are big causes of unnecessary carbon footprint. The, uh, we've done the most extensive analysis in the UK of breakdown of the carbon footprint, and about 25% of it is medication. That's the carbon embedded in medication. And if you think about the amount of over-medication or thrown-away medication, non-concordance, uh, and the unnecessary blood tests that we do, there's lots of ways that we as doctors can make a real impact on the carbon footprint of healthcare, which is, again, a very significant issue, bigger than air travel worldwide, far bigger. Well, thank you very much for sharing those insights. Thank you. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcias-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. 
Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us. 